From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. To track the spread of COVID-19, the state is investing in a test for wastewater. So how does that work exactly? Then we hear from the late Congressman John Lewis, who came to Colorado to mark the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. His words still resonate. It's not over. We're not there yet. We have not yet created the beloved community. We have not yet laid down the burden of race. Plus, Naoma, the band, went from the top of the charts in Ecuador to a new life in Colorado. Naoma is performing at this weekend's Underground Music Showcase, which normally snakes through Denver's streets, but this year goes virtual. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We hear time and again that testing and contact tracing are the best ways to slow the spread of COVID-19. The goal is to find out where the virus lurks. Well, Colorado's deploying another strategy in this arena, testing wastewater. Chris Duville manages wastewater treatment for the city of Boulder. Hi, Chris. Yeah, good morning, Ryan. Hi. Is the idea here that you would detect the virus before people know they're sick and get tested? Yep, that's the premise, uh, an early warning system. An yep. Early warning system. Let let me put this gently since we're talking about wastewater. Uh do we expel virus in in number 2, number 1? <laughs> yeah, great question. So uh you know, those of us who are beyond the yuck factor of of wastewater and poop um We've learned and, and uh, have obtained knowledge that, yeah, it's it's referred to as shedding, right? So uh, someone who might be carrying the COVID strain um, will start shedding that, that virus and the fragments in their stool primarily. So number two. Number two. And how specific can this get? Uh, in other words, can you test to a specific block or building or neighborhood? Yeah, that's that's for sure the hope as this program grows and evolves. Um, you know, again, the premise is around an early warning system where um, asymptomatic carriers um, can be, you know, uh, detected, and um, we can learn about that uh, in advance or before, you know, a traditional, um, you know, swabbing or, or public health testing um, for the for the virus, you know, on an individual basis. How individual is my question? In other words, can you get to a specific home or how targeted is this? Yeah, that's a great question. Right now, the the effort is on a kind of community wide level. So it's it's the uh, where it enters our wastewater treatment facility, our water resource recovery facility. But as the method gets more and more established and the costs come down, the hope is to, like you say, go further upstream and um, canvas certain neighborhoods or certain areas like a hospital discharge or a, a big uh, high interest um, as the, the college campuses or school areas as well. Mm. And then if a community starts to find evidence that the virus has been present in wastewater, w- what would happen then? Yeah, so the public health officials at the county level, uh, so in our case, Boulder County Public Health um, you know, they they are supporting and encouraging this program to grow and, and evolve. So the premise is that um, through our sharing of our data, 
um, they might be able to take some actionable um, steps to you know, impose some different health orders or otherwise um, provide some, you know, more definitive guidance um, beyond just kind of these general orders that are out there. Okay, so what this would exactly inform, look like. Yeah, this this would inform public health. They'd have to make those decisions. Um, there, there you go. I just want to say that th- this is happening in other communities along the Front Range. The state is putting half a million dollars behind this. Uh, students at MIT developed a process for these kinds of tests back in February, and they launched a company called BioBot, uh, which is the technology, I think, that Boulder is using. Why is the state getting involved? Help us understand that. I don't think of the state as having wastewater facilities, but that may be incorrect. Yeah. So those of us, like the city of Boulder, a, a municipality, you know, the state administers our, our clean water programs and uh, makes sure we're in compliance with all state and federal regulations. So um, this is a different twist on on our normal, you know, business model. So yeah, we, we're wastewater experts, and uh, our our role in this is to collect good data and provide samples that um, hopefully reveal meaningful information. But the state, they're motivation is through their, um, you know, their public health sector to work with the local uh, county governments, county health uh, officials, and really, again, um, take all that information and ideally, you know, at the right time, either uh, implement uh, more strict orders or um, have confidence to uh, reduce and, and, and loosen up the orders okay, that so are affecting all of our lives. They have similar interests as the local public health departments. How um, present is this testing already? In other words, have you detected outbreaks this way, or is this something that will be in place in weeks or months? Uh, how, how present is this? Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the biobot Team. So, yes, we are, are participating with them and have been uh, acquiring some data. Uh, they will admit that their methodologies are still evolving and still in development. Um, so what, what's happening in Colorado with our, we call it the Wastewater Surveillance Collaborative, CO for you know, Colorado abbreviation, um, we're, the, the teams that are doing that at uh, Colorado State University and Metropolitan State University, they're using the same methods. So they're just a little bit behind in um, deploying uh, a reliable method here locally uh, that matches, you know, again, what the BioBot team was able to put in place a little earlier. Um, so in short, so this is we, still rolling out. It's still rolling yeah. out, yes. And I'll just be clear that we have in the past tested wastewater for all sorts of things, including, I believe, ibuprofen and opioids as a way of monitoring public health. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome, Ryan. Chris Duville, he's the city of Boulder's wastewater treatment manager. We're going to meet a man now who's juggling a lot. Dr. Chris Hoyt is seeing COVID-19 patients at the University of Colorado. At home, he's raising a daughter. And Hoyt, who's black, has had to explain the death of George Floyd to his young daughter. Here's Dr. Hoyt in his own words, starting with a favorite story about his kiddo. In November of 2019, we took my daughter to Disney World. She's six, and she got to take the uh, Jedi Knight training for little kids. They talked to them about using a lightsaber and doing Jedi Knight tricks and things. When Ray came out to greet them all, 
my daughter literally ran up and hugged her. It was, it was really, really cool. We got it all on video. I still watch it from time to time. Don't tell anybody. My name is Chris Hoyt. I am an emergency medicine physician and medical toxicologist uh, with UC Health in Aurora, Colorado. I had a person who came in who was very short of breath, really uncomfortable, um, and we ended up having to, to put this person on a ventilator. Um, there was a high chance that these people weren't going to make it on the ventilator. And so in this particular time, though, what we did, we kind of slowed down a little bit. We gave the patient the care they needed. And then instead of just admitting them upstairs rapidly, we talked to the family and asked them to come in right then so that they could get a chance to see their family member. There's a chance that you only get one of those because if she died, then family would not get to see her. And so I think that that was an important decision that we made because I know if it was me, I would want someone to do that for me. Having to turn away family at times, that to me is the part that's the most devastating because, you know, these people want to be with their family um, in a time when they're most vulnerable and not being able to do that really sticks to me uh, because you shouldn't be sick and alone. I think what COVID has done is really shine a light on the fact that there's disparities in healthcare. We want to think that there are no disparities and all we care about is health. You never want a, a pandemic ever. But one of the things we have to take from this and learn from this is that the disparities are there. And when COVID comes and passes and we figure it out and we get back to some sense of quote unquote normalcy, even though it's probably never going to go back to normal, we really need to keep our eye on this and really work to figuring out why do the disparities exist and what we can do to fix them. Because we should not have that. You know, that should not be the case in America. So for me, uh, my wife is Latina. And so one of the big hard things for me is having a conversation with my daughter. My daughter asks about this all the time. I remember uh, one day she came up, uh, we were at home. I think we had CNN or some news network on. And she came up and she asked, she said, you know, Daddy, who is George Floyd? And why when the TV is on, he's on TV every day. And having that to, to explain to a six-year-old about what's important about George Floyd's death and how it relates to mommy and daddy in the world. That's a hard, those are hard, those are some very hard conversations. I think it's good. I think it's great, actually, to explain to my daughter why she'll look a little different than other people, but why that's a good thing and why she should be confident about being a girl, to be a minority in this country and how that makes her special. I just wish that these conversations were coming up without COVID, like, looming overhead. The pandemic situation, which we have to pay attention to because lives are on the line, but is it going to take away um, some attention from the, the social inequality piece? I, I wish we could do two things at once, but these are two big, big things. One of the ways that my job has changed is I've been talking to patients much more now about their mental health before they go home. Even though they're there for a sprained ankle, but they might be suffering at home. And we know that things like illicit drug abuse, domestic violence, self-harm attempts, those things are higher risk 
people are at home and don't have jobs. I've, I've changed my practice about being more mindful of looking at cues and asking people just straight how they're doing outside of why they came into the emergency department. Dr. Chris Hoyt, an emergency room physician at the University of Colorado Hospital. You can read this and other profiles of frontline healthcare workers at CPR.org. And thanks to CPR's Claire Cleveland for that. Stacy Shuck and her husband sat down with their daughters over breakfast recently to deliver some tough news that the girls, Addie and Libby, will attend school online this fall. The family decided COVID-19 had made it unsafe to return to the classroom. And they were sad. They were resigned. My 12-year said she figured that's how it was going to be because she didn't see how it could be safe either. Our nine-year-old uh, had some tears. She was pretty let down. She was excited to see people again, you know, and she's been looking forward to having this teacher for fifth grade for the entire time she's been at school. But, you know, she said ultimately she understands, but she's very disappointed and she really wishes this would all go away and everyone could be healthy so that we could go back to being normal. So then, you know, I had to go cry. Across Colorado, parents and educators are making gut-wrenching decisions about going back to school. And you will hear from some of them Monday, along with experts about keeping schools safe when and if students return. Again, that's a special Monday Colorado Matters. All right, when we come back, the message John Lewis brought to Colorado on the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Obviously, you know, you've had a really long relationship with marijuana. It's something people know about you. Why do you like it? Keeps me from killing people. Oh, okay. That's a good reason. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and this is Willie Nelson. We need to end the federal ban on cannabis. On the season two premiere of the CPR podcast, On Something, it's America's most beloved pot smoker. On Something is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The body of Congressman John Lewis, the civil rights icon, will lie in state at the U.S. Capitol next week. According to NPR, a public viewing will take place out of doors because of the pandemic. Representative Lewis died last Friday at age 80. Six years ago, he was at the Aspen Ideas Festival to mark the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. Lewis recounted how his eyes opened to racism at an early age, followed by a call to action. I grew up in rural Alabama, 50 miles from Montgomery. My father was a sharecropper, a tenant farmer. But when we would visit the little town of Troy, or visit Montgomery, a visit to Tuskegee, I saw those signs that said, white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. And I didn't like it. Hmm. And I would come home and ask my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents why. And they would say, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way, don't get in trouble. Hmm. And in 1955, 15 years old, in the 10th grade, I heard about Rosa Parks. I heard the words of Martin Luther King Jr. on the old radio. And it seemed like Dr. King was saying, John Robert Lewis, you two can do something. Really? And I wanted to do something. And I was so inspired that in 1956, at the age of 16, with some of my brothers and sisters and cousins, we went down to the public library in the little town of Troy, Alabama, trying to get library card, trying to check out some books. 
and we were told by the librarian that the library was for whites only and not for colored. Lewis went back to that library more than 40 years later for a book signing. He was a successful author at that point, and they finally gave him a library card. Lewis spoke with Gwen Eiffel of PBS, who has also since passed away, and let's listen back to more of their conversation. He recalls another defining moment in his life. Well, it was Bloody Sunday, March 7, 1965, about 3 p.m., I will never forget it. There were 600 of us walking in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion. We were on a sidewalk crossing the bridge. We got to the edge of the bridge. We saw a line of Alabama state troopers. And behind the state troopers, the sheriff posse was on horseback. A man identified himself and sent a Major John Cloud of the Alabama state troopers. This is an unlawful march. It would not be allowed to continue. I give you three minutes to disperse, return to your homes or to your church. And a young man walking beside me from Dr. King's organization by the name of Jose Williams Mm. said, Major, give us a moment to kneel and pray. Mm. And the Major said, Troopers advance. And you saw these guys putting on their gas masks. They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks tramping us with horses, and releasing the tear gas. I was the first one to be hit. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. And I had a concussion at the bridge. My legs went from under me. I thought I saw death. I thought I was going to die. But I do recall being back at the church. I don't know how I made it across. I guess someone carried me. got back to the church and someone said, say something to the audience, speak up, John, speak. The church was full to capacity. More than 2,000 people on outside trying to get in. And I said, I don't understand it. How President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam and cannot send troops to Selma, Alabama to protect people who only desires to register to vote. He was determined to help, but not always. I mean, he, no. was, he was often an obstacle. Well, in, in 1964, after Dr. King had received a Nobel Peace Prize and came back to Washington and had a meeting with President Johnson, he said, uh, uh, Mr. President, we need a voter rank site. And, and President Johnson said in so many words, Dr. King, I just signed a civil rank site. We don't have the votes in the Congress to get the voter rank site. He said, in effect, make me do it. Hmm. And we did. In Selma, Alabama in 1965, people could not register to vote simply because of the color of their skin. People were asked to count the number of bubbles in a bar of soap, the number of jelly beans in a jar. There were black lawyers and doctors and college professors, high school principals and teachers, farmers and housewives were told they could not read or write well enough. So we had to press the issue. People stood in unmovable line. We went to Selma in 1962. Mm-hmm. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had been working there. And then in Mississippi in 61, 63, 64. There was not always agreement, even within the movement, uh, about what the right approach was. Well, some people thought we should just engage in direct action. Right. Others thought we should uh, go out and try to get people involved in the political process. 
by trying to get people registered to vote. And that's what the Mississippi Summer Project was all about. Right. That's what Selma was all about. Because of the march from Selma to Montgomery, because of the drama, mm -hmm. because of what happened, the American people couldn't take it. They couldn't stand it. So there was a sense of righteous indignation. Mm -hmm. And eight days later, President Johnson delivered one of the most moving speeches on voting rights and civil rights. We call it the We Shall Overcome speech, March 15, 1965. Do you sometimes think that we know the three names, you know, Rosa Parks sat down, Martin King stood up, whatever, and that was it. There was so much more going on about it, and it seems to me that a lot of those names have been lost to history and a lot of that activism. So many unbelievable men and women, hmm. black and white, gave everything they had. It was the three civil rights workers, Mika Scherner, Andy Goodman White, James Shaney, African-American. But you had a woman coming down from, from Detroit, Vola Luzo, to help out. The Reverend James Reed from Boston, White. And there were so many other people whose homes were bombed. There were the bombing of churches, bombing of synagogues in the South. The interesting thing, conversation we keep having, um, is where we are now with all of this. And I wonder whether people aren't, wouldn't just be happier to be past it all, to say that's a nice history, let's move on. We, no, we, can, we, we cannot. It's not over. We're not there yet. We have not yet created the beloved community. We have not yet laid down the burden of race. I, I guess I, I, I struggle between the idea of optimism, the optimism that's contained in the retelling of your story, and someone saying, I see something wrong, I'm just going to try to fix it, a young person, and a little bit of pessimism about where we are today, as much in denial as in uh, any idea that anything can change. People turn inward, people decide. Do you see evidence, as you talk to people or as they talk to you, that some of that spirit that you possessed as a young person in this movement, or any movement today, still exists, oh, whether I, on the right or the left? Oh, I, I see it in people, especially the young. That sense of hope, that sense of optimism, it is in keeping with the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. I said to young people, and I said to some of my colleagues in the Congress, I said, you must never, ever give up. You must never, ever give in or get lost in a sea of despair. You must keep the faith and believe. When you lose hope, it's just like saying, oh. Isn't okay. that what older people do? It's the younger people who have the optimism. Oh, I think we all have to, you know, I'm 74, but I'm as hopeful as the time I first took a seat on that lunch counter <laughs> school. And I would not lose that. You know, since I've been, I got arrested 40 times during the 60s. That's all? Only 40, but since I've been in Congress, five more times. Yeah. And I'm probably going to get arrested some more soon. If we don't do something about comprehensive immigration reform, really, you have to have the ability to speak up, speak out, and get in the way, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. That's what I've been doing for more than 50 years. 
The late civil rights leader, Georgia Representative John Lewis, speaking with Gwen Ifill at the Aspen Ideas Festival six years ago. It was the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act, that audio courtesy of the Aspen Institute. By the way, there's a petition with more than 500,000 signatures to rename the bridge where Lewis was attacked in his honor. News changes daily, and every day, CPR and NPR bring you reliable, up-to-date information, facts and advice, news about what's happening in your state. You have access to this important coverage thanks to the generosity of members who continue to make voluntary donations. Join them. Sustain CPR for yourself and for the benefit of the thousands of listeners who rely on Colorado Public Radio every day. It's easy at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Mountain communities have all felt the economic pain of the coronavirus pandemic. It's been especially tough just outside of Leadville, where the fallout exacerbates underlying inequalities. Here's CPR's Nathaniel Miner. I couldn't even get to Ana Dominguez's door before her small dog, Nanico, announced my arrival. I step past stacks of firewood and toys into Dominguez's home, a tanned, single-wide mobile home about three miles north of Leadville. The inside is small but neat, with photos of her children on the walls. She moved to the area 16 years ago from Mexico, looking for opportunities. And she told me through an interpreter that she thought she'd stay just for a few years. Then the situation changed. I met my husband, and now we have a family. Dominguez has worked in restaurants over the years, but now stays at home and volunteers in the community. Her husband, like many people here, works an hour away in the Vale Valley. He's a carpenter, but he lost his work in the spring when the coronavirus pandemic hit. She says they were nearly out of money when they got help from a local nonprofit. I don't know what I would have done without the assistance. I probably would have went into um, debt, borrowing money from other community members. Um, If it wasn't for them, for Full Circle, I would have probably lost my home. Full Circle paid about $2,000 worth of her bills. Stephanie Cole runs the nonprofit. We've distributed over $230,000 at this point, which is so much money for this tiny, poor little town. The money went to hundreds of immigrant families in three mobile home parks just outside of Leadville city limits. Cole says many residents are undocumented, and that means they're unable to collect benefits like unemployment and food stamps. So Full Circle and other groups raised funds to get people help. And Cole says the need shocked her. People were already so behind on bills, they couldn't afford basics, like propane. So they were literally living in in housing without heat when it was snowing easily through April up here, and we get a lot of snow. For the Dominguez family and others, it's difficult to prepare for any economic downturn, let alone a collapse like the pandemic. Trailer park residents own their homes, but not the land underneath it. So they don't build equity like other homeowners would. And many in the park are stretched thin already, commuting long distances to ski industry towns like Vail and Breckenridge. Those industries could not exist without immigrants. All of the low-paying, high-demand jobs that keep those industries running and so profitable, like all of that is on the backs of our 
immigrant community. This dynamic has existed for decades here, but the pandemic and protests over racism have started a conversation about changing that. Christian Luna's parents moved to the mobile home park from Mexico a few years before he was born. It's tough because you see a lot of people who try their hardest to, you know, make it out, if you will, or pull them up by their bootstraps, as the saying goes, but they just, they literally can't because of the systematic barriers that are put in front of them. Luna says his parents have legal status, and he grew up speaking English. He says he was actually punished at school for speaking Spanish. So he's comfortable sticking his neck out. He's part of a group pushing local leaders to better meet the needs of the immigrant community. And I understand I have an immense privilege uh, that a lot of other immigrants just don't. And I should use that properly, and I should use that to actually have change. Leadville's Mayor Greg Lobby says he's doing his best. The city has given $20,000 to the fund that's paid immigrants' bills. But he says a lot is outside of his control. There are a lot of things that we would love to do. But we don't have the authority to do it, and we don't have the money to do it. Stephanie Cole with Full Circle says that fund will run out over the next month. She's trying to raise more, but calls the money a Band-Aid. She says people in Leadville need major changes, things like federal immigration reform, to actually get back on their feet for good. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. In normal times, this would be a huge weekend in Denver for indie music with the Underground Music Showcase. Usually, the festival takes over the Baker neighborhood, transforming bars and even backyards into live music venues. But for its 20th year, UMS has to go virtual because of the pandemic, of course, which is why they're calling this the Underground Music Something with a live stream tomorrow. In a few minutes... We're going to hear from one of the showcase bands. They relocated to Denver from Ecuador. But first, my colleague Maggie Donahue from Denverite has been in touch with business owners for whom this would have otherwise been a lucrative weekend. And Maggie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. On the UMS website, it says more than another bleeping live stream. What does that mean? How are they going to make this festival feel different? There's this idea that festival live streams are kind of dull, that they're just, you know, you sitting on your couch and staring at a screen. And UMS's producers really wanted to move away from that idea to make it more interactive and engaging for the people watching from home. I think we can all identify with this, you know, in our Zoom meetings and things. Absolutely. So, yes, a large part of the show is going to be these live stream performances by Colorado bands and artists like Wilderness and Yasi. But all of these performances are also going to be interwoven with interactive sets like prize giveaways and raffles, as well as commentary by Colorado comedians Christy Bukley and Sam Talent. Okay, it's virtual, but organizers want to create the feeling that you are somewhere, maybe in, in a bar, for instance. How else do you think they'll do that? So the virtual performances are all staged out of classic UMS venues like High Dive and the Goodwill on Broadway. Okay, so the businesses are still playing a role here. Right. And UMS is also doing things like delivering party packs to audience members. And as I understand it, those party packs are basically cocktail kits or packs of beer that you can order to your house before the show. Okay. <laughs> so they're kind of a way to encourage viewers to get together with a couple of friends and pregame and make a night, like a fun night of the live stream, much as they would for a normal UMS Though, of course, in a safe, socially distant way. 
Um, and Casey Berry, the festival's producer, told me that a lot of the planning for UM Something has gone into finding ways to recreate the tone of the festival. It's gritty. It's kind of like unexpected. And there's a lot of like really unique surprises along the way. Like that's why we get people down to Broadway and like you just stumble into a venue. You just get to find a new artist. And we wanted to keep that core vibe. Of course, the big difference here is people won't be in those bars and other venues. I imagine that's going to be a hardship, though, for businesses that count on this big weekend. Yeah, I spoke to the owner of Mutiny Information Cafe. Matt Mageshi told me that UMS weekend is one of their busiest times of the year. It was this time where thousands of people would flood into the neighborhood and hang out all day and into the night. So even businesses that weren't official UMS venues also got a huge boost. And Mageshi told me that a lot of businesses really depend on that boost to stay open. Yeah, especially now during the pandemic when several South Broadway businesses like the Three Kings Tavern have already permanently closed. So restaurants and bars could have really used that UMS boost right about now. It was the, the time that they were, you know, make their money back or they would go into the black, much like a lot of retail spaces would go into the black, you know, for Christmas and everything. So some of these bars, like Three Kings, you know, they usually would be able to wait it out, do really well during UMS. And this year that just wasn't going to happen for them. You also talked to the business owner who has concerns beyond losing out on the music showcase. Mm. Yeah, I talked to Sean Workman, who's a managing partner at The Hornet, and that's a bar and restaurant that has hosted a ton of UMS events in the past. And yes, he's worried about how performance spaces like The Hornet will survive without live music, but he told me that he's also worried about the performers who likewise rely on venues, because if venues shut down, musicians won't have anywhere to play. I feel for all businesses right now that are going through a rough time. And, and all musicians, more importantly. I mean, we've got a lot of tenants upstairs that are involved in the music industry one way or another. Uh, you know, I've got a tenant that's moving out now as we speak uh, that promotes for Live Nation. And uh, he's obviously, you know, got nothing to do at the moment. And it's just sad. It's, you know, we're all connected and there's a big uh, trickle-down effect, I guess. Yeah, it's a kind of symbiosis. How is this uh, affecting the artists in the festival? The festival's coordinators have been thinking about how to help its artists in a sustainable way. So this year, the festival is going to operate as a fundraiser for the Colorado Music Relief Fund, which supports Colorado musicians and music industry professionals who've been affected by the pandemic. There's going to be a retro-style telethon and a (laughs) raffle, and that partnership goes both ways. The Relief Fund has promised $1,000 to 150 different UMS-affiliated bands. And then, in turn, any profits raised during the fundraiser will go right back to the Relief Fund. So it's really not just about keeping the festival around for another year. Casey Berry told me that the live stream is a way to channel revenue right back into Colorado's music community. It's insane how COVID has impacted our industry. We need to help these artists as much as possible. Like without them, music (laughs) that's being threatened. And I can't imagine a world without live music and our artists being a a major part of our lives. So we got to really step up and, and help everybody out. Such an intricate relationship. Maggie, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. 
Denverite's Maggie Donahue on this weekend's Underground Music Something. You can find a list of musicians performing virtually at denverite.com. One of those artists is Naoma. The pop act hails from Ecuador, but now resides in Denver. Naoma has a new single out today. Carla Wiracocha is the singer for Naoma, and she joins us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm really pleased to talk to you because your music is so cool. You were born in New Jersey. You moved to Ecuador Mm -hmm. when you were four. Where did music making come in? Well, I feel like music has been around my life since I'm little because my dad is a musician as well. Mm. Uh, he used to play the guitar. I remember we, when we moved to Ecuador in our house, we used to have like a music room, so full of instruments. And I used to dance and, you know, sing with my dad. Uh, did your father encourage you to pick up instruments as well? Yes, he, he plays the guitar. So he was the first one to teach me how to play the guitar and like sing. So yeah, he, he was definitely encouraging me to learn the dancing part of this, which you mentioned, uh, do you tend to dance a lot on stage? Definitely. I would like to dance a little bit more, of course, with a dance crew, not only by myself. Um, it's kind of hard now that I have a band, you know, sometimes when we have a band, we don't have that much space to fit on a dance group either. Uh, but yeah, I definitely tend to dance a lot when I sing. Yeah. Tell me more about the live music scene in Cuenca. This is the city in Ecuador where Naoma started. Oh, it's amazing, actually. I feel like it's been growing for the last couple of years. Um, I was a big fan of the music scene. I was actually, I, I used to work as um, promoting events and promoting concerts. That's how I got these great connections with more musicians as well. Huh. So I've yeah, I've always been involved, and I think that it's been growing more and more. We have new bands and new projects coming up, and it's it's been great. Yeah, it's definitely, it has a huge scene there. So uh, this is interesting. Uh, Cuenca is at 8,300 feet elevation. So co- yes. coming to Denver was uh, going to a lower elevation for you. We're talking a community of about 330,000 people. And mm-hmm. and you were doing music promotion, huh? Um, not necessarily as much music making? Right. I was like an event promoter. Whenever we had festivals or like uh, concerts, I used to be the one selling the tickets and doing more like marketing promotion for the bands and for the actual concerts through my social media. So yeah, I was doing that before I started with music, but of course I've always been involved with music and writing my own stuff and learning instruments as well. So Naoma was well-established in Ecuador, and you had a radio hit with the song Real. Nada 
things seem to be going quite well in Ecuador. Why did you move to Denver? Well, since I was born here in the States, I saw like an opportunity to pursue something bigger because I feel like Ecuador is a great place. It has a great music scene, but it wasn't much that I could do there. Mm. Um, so I already have my manager and I've contacted an agent here as well. And I have my producer, which is Danny, and he was moving here to Denver as well. So we were just like, why don't we move together and just start over here. You mentioned Danny. This is Danny Pauta, guitarist and producer that you work with. And you thought that you could just get, what, bigger here? Is this about having more ears on your music? Is it about deepening your musical abilities? What is it? Actually, when I came here, I I didn't really have a plan. But when I moved to Denver, I started to realize that, of course, writing in English, it was better for me in my creative process. Because, you know, sometimes when you're like, I, I feel like when I write in Spanish, how I express emotions and things sometimes are different with another language. And like, I feel like English is such a melodic language for me to write. So I was experiencing a lot of um, inspiration. And as well, of course, I wanted to take my music that is in Spanish to take it to a country that, of course, everyone speaks English here. And I, I just wanted to my music to find something beyond what was in Ecuador. I'm glad you brought up the, the bilingualism here um, because we, we've heard two of your Spanish language songs. And indeed, you write mm-hmm. in English. I wonder if you also sometimes want to do both, like Spanglish. (laughs) Um, A sense that there are some concepts in Spanish and some concepts in English that just resonate more with you. Definitely. I have my song, Into You, and that's a song that I have the first verse in English, and then the chorus is just a mixture of, like, it's it's Spanglish, pretty much, uh, because it's like, Una luz en tu cara in the moon Una luz en tu cara in the moon Tu casa y no dejes nada aquí No dejes nada Una luz en tu cara in the moon Tu casa y no dejes nada aquí No dejes nada aquí I mentioned tu cara which means your face and then it's in the moon which is La Luna in Spanish. So I feel like I can like play with those melodies too because, you know, languages are so melodic sometimes. And mixing those two languages, it was like, wow, something great exploring for me beyond what I was doing, you know, just writing in one language. It's interesting to hear you describe English as, I think the the word was melodic. Is that the word you used? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I guess I just think naturally of romance languages as more melodic. So it's nice to hear you say Mm -hmm. that about English. And my guest is Carla Huidacocha, the lead singer of Naoma, one of the acts performing in tomorrow's virtual underground music showcase. You've played this festival before, Carla, but this year it looks a lot different with the pandemic. Fans will only Mm -hmm. be able to watch via online video stream. 
Have Have you had the virtual concert experience yet during the pandemic? Oh, definitely. I, I've been doing a bunch of live stream concerts. It's kind of hard to get a good sound through yeah. the computer instead of like it'll be um, in a concert, for example. So we've been doing a lot of live streams. I, I think that we we have finally mastered the <laughs> the setup for live stream concerts. But it's it's been good. It's been great. Of course, it's kind of weird because, you know, I'm so used to finish a song and then hear the applause yeah. and hear people like screaming and yelling. <laughs> and then after I finish the song in a live stream, I'm just like there. It's, it's kind of silent. But I think it's different, a different experience. Now, in the case of the Underground Music Showcase, I understand you've already mm-hmm. recorded your performance. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Yes. Yes. And where mm-hmm. can I ask where you recorded it? Yes, it was actually a very crazy place for me to like record it. Uh, it was inside Goodwill. It'll be the Goodwill that it's right on Broadway. Um, oh, for so people it was who, really interesting. Yeah, for people who don't know it, this is a giant Goodwill in an old building on the first floor, and it really mm-hmm. is quite. It's quite vast. Was it filled with clothes and stuff? Yes, of course, they like try to make some room for the band and to feed the drum set and everything and to feed the cameras. But it was really cool to see all those rugs or clothes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they have funny hats hanging from the, uh, what are these called, from like the hangers. So it was it was really interesting, actually. Yeah, I, I love that. Did you pick up any used clothes? I did, uh, but only to, <laughs> only to record, like, a promo. So the whole band actually grabbed, like, an umbrella, a funny hat. I think they grabbed, like, a scarf, maybe. I don't remember. Well, Carla, the future of the live music industry is, you know, really in question. Are, mm-hmm. are you optimistic that you'll play in front of live audiences again soon, or what? To be honest? I don't even want to think about it yeah, <laughs> because yeah. I feel like it. I read this article about the live music coming up maybe around 2022, hmm. which it kind of, you know, it kind of freaked me out. But I, I feel like I've been trying to more being inspired. I feel right now I'm currently writing a new album. And I'm just trying to put all these ideas together. I like to be at home a lot, actually. Mm. I'm not a person that usually goes out. I like to be at home, locked up in my room with my piano and my computer. And that's my happy place. And I I could write a thousand songs there. So it hasn't been that hard for me because I actually like being at home. Um, But I don't don't even want to think about the future. I'm living day by day over here. Yeah, sometimes it feels like living almost hour by hour. You oh, know? my God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wanted to know if, if this was a creative time for you, and it sounds like it is. And, in fact, you have a new single out today, Cuando Quieres Jugar Conmigo, uh, if I have the translation right, when you want to play with me. Is that right? There you go. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the right one. And this is a collaboration with Lollaboom, a band from Ecuador, uh, why don't you just say a few words about how it came together before we wrap up? Somehow, with this whole pandemic thing, people got so much better at connecting with other people, you know, virtually. 
Pedro sent me a song at first. Um, is this Pedro Bonfim? Yes, Pedro is the lead singer of, L- of Lollaboon. I like the song a lot. I wrote a couple lyrics for it, but we weren't that happy with the with the result. So uh, we made like one of those virtual meetings and we wanted to start a new song. So we started all over again. Oh. And that's how we came up the song. It was literally just a collaboration to a bunch of calls and voice notes and video chatting and FaceTiming. So it was great, a great experience. Wow. Well, I, I think it's really admirable when something doesn't quite feel right to say, you know what, we need to start over or we need something new. Mm-hmm. It, do you think, was that hard? Not really, because I was the one who told Pedro. Pedro really liked the song, but I wasn't that. I, I, I'm kind of like a perfectionist with my music. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Carla, and I appreciate your time. Stay safe. Definitely. Okay, well, it was great to talk to you. <laughs> Carla Wiracocha is the singer for Naoma. The Denver Act performs tomorrow for the virtual edition of the Underground Music Showcase. And you can watch the live video stream from the comfort of your home. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Yeah.